Welcome to the Doc Talks Podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. Today, we're discussing a well-known medical condition that affects roughly 30% of Canadians, some of whom are yet to be diagnosed. I'm talking about diabetes. And St. Joseph's is the regional leader in diabetes treatment and education in southwestern Ontario. And with me today to discuss the latest in diabetes care is endocrinologist Dr. Tamara Speich. Dr. Speich is the medical director of the Diabetes Education Centre at St. Joseph's and an assistant professor in the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism at Western University. She trained in internal medicine and endocrinology at Western, where she also received her Master of Science degree in clinical epidemiology and biostatistics. Dr. Speich, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Oh, hello, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. Yeah. So I think, I, I mean, a lot of us, we probably think we know a little bit about diabetes. As I said at the start there, that uh, about 30% of Canadians are affected either with diabetes or pre-diabetes, and that diabetes apparently can reduce your lifespan by 5 to 10 years. And I think a lot of us are somewhat familiar that there's a type 1 and type 2. So can you just take us through the very basics here? What is type 1 diabetes? That's great. Yes, the most common two types of diabetes are type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes refers to an autoimmune condition where the beta cells, which are the cells of the pancreas, which is the organ that produces insulin, are destroyed by this autoimmune process. So a person is unable to produce sufficient insulin to keep their blood sugars in a normal level. We do not know exact cause of type 1 diabetes. We know that it is an autoimmune condition. We do not know exactly what triggers type 1 diabetes. It's a probably combination of some kind of environmental and genetic factors. This type of diabetes usually develops early in life. Uh, you can see it as early as children age 1 and 2, and there is no cure. People are dependent on insulin as a life-sustaining treatment throughout their life. But as of late, we have found out that the type 1 diabetes is more and more diagnosed in older people, people above of age 30 or 40, which it used to be less common. So that would be type 1 diabetes. And sorry, I just want to check a fact with you here. It says that approximately 10% of people with diabetes have type 1. Does that sound accurate? Uh, 
probably around that number. Uh, mm -hmm. We usually say 90% of people that have diabetes will have type 2 diabetes. Some of the numbers may be slightly underestimated because people that are diagnosed later on in life are assumed to have type 2, while they may have some type 1, but the, that breakdown on 90 to 10% is roughly correct. And um, maybe we should mention some of the symptoms of type 1 are, and correct me if I've got this wrong, but blurred vision, decreased mental sharpness and awareness, extreme thirst and hunger, fatigue, uh, frequent need to urinate, uh, skin infections, weight loss, and are those, does that make sense? Those are all symptoms of type 1? Yeah, so a type 1 has a very discreet onset. So most people remember exact date when they were diagnosed. They will tell you it was April 13, 1989 when I was diagnosed. It presents hmm. very typically with a significant thirst, so increased thirst, increased urination, Patients who are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes have to go to the bathroom all the time. They cannot mm. go on the long road trips. They cannot sleep throughout the night. They constantly go to the bathroom and there is a significant weight loss. So they present mm. feeling thirsty, drinking water all the time, losing weight. And it, it that does not usually hopefully last for a long time. They are if they have uh, access to the healthcare, they are diagnosed fairly quickly. And it's a very discreet event in their life, which they remember very well. Wow. And so let's uh, jump before we get into treatment and so forth. Um, let's get into type 2, the most common form of diabetes. As you said, about 90% of individuals have type 2. Can you tell us a little bit about type 2? Type 2 is uh, much more common. It presents in adulthood, although, as you know, with the rise of the obesity, now we are seeing more children presenting with type 2 mm. diabetes. Type 2 diabetes as a chronic metabolic illness is a result of either insulin resistance. What insulin resistance means that patients produces enough insulin, but that insulin, which is the hormone that maintains blood sugar in a normal range, does not work. It's like a key uh, that does not fit in a proper keyhole. And then hmm. it's a combination of insulin resistance as well as with time, usually lack of insulin. With the time, the pancreas cannot produce enough insulin to keep up with this insulin resistance and then results in elevated blood sugar. So type hmm. two is, as I said, usually diagnosed in adulthood, uh, in old increases, the risk of type two increases with older age. And hmm. there are significant risk factors, which primarily involves high BMI or uh, obesity. Certain ethnic groups like our First Nations in Canada have a much higher incidence of type two diabetes, diabetes in pregnancy, so-called gestational diabetes, having a large baby increases the risk of type 2 diabetes. And as the rise of obesity in the Western world is significant, uh, the type 2 diabetes parallels that rise. As you know, about 60% of Canadians are overweight or obese, uh, and that significantly increases the risk of type 2 diabetes. Well, so we're seeing more, type 2 is more prevalent. Can you, Is there a number you can attach to that? Are we seeing a certain percentage increase in type 2 diabetes? Or? Yeah, so right now, let's say in Ontario, one or out of every 10 adults in Ontario have diabetes. And in age about 75, that number goes even to 1 to 5. The prediction is that the number of Canadians that will develop type 2 diabetes by, I believe, 2040 is 40% 40 
increase. Wow. So wow. Really, forty percent increase. By I believe twenty forty. So and the International Diabetes Federation, which is the worldwide sort of a diabetes uh, organization, just calls type two diabetes a tsunami. So with the rise of the obesity and the population that is aging, the prevalence rates of type two diabetes are significantly on the increase, and the cost and the burden on the healthcare system is humongous. So everything that we can do to prevent diabetes from developing should be our focus at the moment. Mm-hmm. And then again, obviously, the, some of the consequences of type 2 diabetes are obviously quite serious. Again, I'm looking here that uh, people with diabetes are three times more likely to be hospitalized with cardiovascular disease, 12 times more likely to be hospitalized with end-stage renal disease, and... Um, well, this is a strange one. Almost 20 times more likely to be hospitalized for a non-traumatic lower limb amputation. Those are serious concerns, obviously. Absolutely. So people that have diabetes will not die from high blood sugars itself. It's right. the consequences of that high uh, blood sugars over time that cause all these health issues. So we know that people with type 2 diabetes are two to four times more likely to develop cardiovascular disease. As you mentioned, they live five to 10 years shorter. And the primary cause of death and dying is cardiovascular, so strokes and uh, heart Mm -hmm. attacks. We know that traditionally, Diabetes has been the leading cause of blindness, leading cause of end-stage renal disease, so dialysis, uh, as well as amputations. So we call those structural complications. Those high sugars over time affect the nerves and blood vessels and as a consequence affects other organs. However, over the past five to 10 years, a bit longer, the research has shown that there are many other consequences and that other organs are affected as well. For example, people with diabetes have a higher rates of certain cancers. There is a significant involvement and the risk of developing liver disease. Diabetes is associated possibly with dementia, depression. So wow. many other organs, not just traditionally that we always talk about blindness, kidney disease, heart attacks and strokes, but now many other organs and other illnesses are associated uh, and have a higher risk if you have diabetes. Well, now some of the symptoms of type 2 are similar uh, to type 1. I'll just, again, some of the type 2 symptoms, thirst or hunger, unusual, uh, unexplained weight loss, frequent urination, extreme fatigue, blurred vision. These are correct. Yes? Although I will have to say that Mm -hmm. we think that most people actually have no symptoms and then most people are diagnosed a couple of years after they've developed diabetes. Yes, traditional symptoms of feeling thirsty, feeling tired, having to pee more often, having recurrent infections, sometimes the yeast infection or urine infections can be the first sign uh, of diabetes. But a lot of times, And that's why we do the routine screening. People will not have atypical symptoms. And we often pick up high blood sugars just on a 
routine blood work that was not done necessarily for any particular symptoms. And hence, our recommendations that anyone who is above the age of 40 should have a screening for type 2 diabetes because prevalence is so high and people will not necessarily early on in their career of diabetes present with symptoms. And so, obviously, sadly, I guess a lot of people are walking around with undiagnosed diabetes, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why, as a physicians and the medical community, what we are trying to spread the awareness and make sure that everyone knows that they should be screened for diabetes early. For example, screening in pregnancy is important because that signifies the risk. People that have obesity, people that have what we call a metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, significant family history should be screened for diabetes, even though they may not have any symptoms. And sometimes I have to say, the first presentation of diabetes could be a heart attack. Sometimes we diagnose diabetes in coronary unit when the patients present with the heart attack, so with the stroke. And we want to make sure that we can do this in advance so we can decrease the risk of all these complications, including the cardiovascular disease. We've talked about symptoms and so forth, doctor. How do people get screened? How do they find out that they do suffer from diabetes? Ian, thank you for that question. That's a really important and great question. Diabetes uh, can be diagnosed by a simple blood test. Most of family physicians do order those tests anyhow as a part of their routine screening, but the patients can remind their either their nurse practitioners, their family physicians, uh, and it's a simple blood test that can be done. Uh, we do have a special test where we give you a sugary drink to drink, and then we measure blood sugar at hours zero, one, and two. But that test uh, has been now mostly replaced just by a simple uh, fasting blood uh, test at any lab in uh, Ontario. And important to know is if you have significant family history, if your weight has significantly changed, if you are on a medication such as the steroid medications that are known to increase the blood sugars, then you should be screened Earlier, if you develop symptoms such as feeling thirsty, losing weight, going to the bathroom often, then you should also alert your healthcare provider to have the uh, test. And then at the end, some of our patients have uh, relatives or their neighbors who have diabetes who do their own blood sugar monitoring by pricking their fingers. And if you think that your blood sugars may be high, then your neighbor can help you test. And if the blood sugar level is uh, elevated, then you should immediately seek uh, medical uh, attention. Right. So let's talk about treatment then, generally. Um, I guess different treatments for type 1 versus type 2, is that correct? Yes, to a certain extent, yes. Uh, type uh, 1 diabetes uh, requires insulin at all the times mm -hmm. for, as a life-sustaining People that are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, initially the cornerstone of any uh, type 2 diabetes treatment is lifestyle modifications. So changing diet, uh, minimizing simple carbohydrates, simple sugars, and uh, balancing the diet, eating more protein and complex carbohydrates. 
weight loss and physical activity are the recommendations for everyone with type 2 diabetes. So all our patients with type 2 diabetes will get the same lifestyle recommendation or similar lifestyle recommendations, which is the dietary changes, so following diabetic diet as well as physical activity and aiming for 5% weight loss if they are overweight or obese. And then if those measures are successful, and we do know that the lifestyle changes can be successful in uh, reverting or preventing development of uh, type 2 diabetes, then the paradigm was gradual addition of initially pills or what we call oral agents. And then with the time as diabetes progresses and the blood sugars remain, if they remain elevated, then we add other treatments and insulin is one of those options. I have to say that the paradigm of treatment of type 2 diabetes is changing. So type 2 diabetes is always seen as inevitably chronic progressive illness. However, over the past five years, we have had development of new treatments and our paradigm is now shifting. Now we are thinking, can we put type 2 diabetes in remission? So treat quite aggressively early on so we can normalize those blood sugars and even allow patients to maintain normal blood sugars off treatment. So that's what our goal is. So this so-called remission of type 2 diabetes is the kind of paradigm shift in treatment of type 2 diabetes. Uh, and it's the closest that we actually have to sort of a cure of type 2 diabetes at the moment. And is that um, the goal of remission, is that accomplished mainly through medication then? Yes, through the lifestyle, so weight loss right. and medications. And we have new pharmacological agents, a completely new classes of drugs that are really effective in normalizing blood sugars and maintaining uh, and losing weight, which helps uh, normalize blood sugars of any treatment. Remission, by definition, would be normal blood sugars of any treatment for at least three months. Now, can, can you talk a little bit about the um, the treatment options and the, the, the education and so forth that's offered at St. Joseph's? I mean, so most people, obviously, they, they might suspect they have certain, they're showing certain symptoms, they go to a family doctor, and then might they come to St. Joseph's? Where, where would they go? Yes, yes, absolutely right. Uh, Ian, thank you for reminding me. We are the leaders in diabetes treatment and management. As I said, the cornerstone of diabetes treatment is lifestyle modifications, dietary changes. Here at St. Joseph's Diabetes Education Center, we have our certified diabetes educators, who are nurses and dietitians with a focus on managing diabetes. Our dietitians are extremely skillful. They help our patients modify their diet uh, and follow specific recommendations for diabetic uh, diet, as well as help with the physical activity, how to monitor blood sugars, what to look for, how to make those life changes gradually and successfully. We have various programs such as craving change where we help our patients minimize the food cravings so they can adjust their diet. We have programs for the physical activity in conjunction with our cardiac rehab program. And importantly, we are the leaders in use of technology in helping monitor blood sugars as well as implementing a new treatments for our patients with 
diabetes, either type one or type two. Excellent. We're talking a lot about the the medical and the physical aspects of the disease. What about the the psychological aspects of diabetes? Is uh, do we offer treatment for those sorts of aspects? This this is a a huge part of diabetes management. This is still a chronic illness. There's a lot of labeling and stigma associated mm-hmm. with diabetes and hence mental support. And as I mentioned previously, diabetes is associated with increased risk of depression, uh, also increased risk of eating disorders. So we do need to work on much better mental health support for our people with our people with diabetes. We are quite lucky here at uh, St. Joseph's Healthcare that we started a new initiative for people with chronic illnesses, including uh, diabetes, in supporting uh, through the work with a psychologist and behavioral change specialist. So we are now training all our staff at Diabetes Education Center, and we are training physicians to be able to provide this support to our patients. And we are including psychologists as well as social workers and uh, educating the rest of the team to help support. But I have to say the mental health resources are scarce, as you know, in Canada. And this has been a major challenge. That's why we have started this new initiative at St. Joe's. We are trying to overcome those barriers and at least provide some initial support for our patients, which is uh, really, really important. We are very proud of the uh, of those developments here. Yeah, excellent. Well, it sounds like such a critical part of the disease. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Of course, you're, you're the medical director of the Diabetes Education Center. How many people would go through the, the education center in a year? Do you have a, any sense of how many patients you'd treat? That's a very good question. We do uh, certainly see, I cannot give you exact number per year, uh, but in our practice, we do have currently over 6,000 patients with type 2 diabetes and 2,000 patients with type 1 diabetes. And and most of our patients will go through diabetes education. I should mention that the really important part is that we work as a multidisciplinary team. So diabetes specialists uh, work alongside with our certified diabetes educators, our nurses and dietitians, and we work together as a team on a program that is adopted to each patient individually that makes sure that we address their needs and barriers and different factors that uh, will allow us to move ahead with the proper diabetes management. And again, patients would come to the experts at St. Joe's from all over southwestern Ontario, I assume? Yes, that is correct. Uh, We do primarily cover London and surrounding area. Uh, However, we do have patients as far as uh, Sault Ste. Marie and uh, down to all to the Windsor. Windsor has their own, but we do cover uh, wide area. And because we are considered the that we have an expertise, especially in treatment of type 1 diabetes and technology, we will see patients wider than uh, our catchment area, for sure. Right. And I know you've worked extensively looking into juvenile diabetes, right, and affecting adolescents and so forth. Obviously, you've seen big increases there amongst young people. Yes, yeah, my, my 
clinical practice and my research focuses on uh, type 1 diabetes. It used to be called juvenile hmm. diabetes. It's now referred as a type 1 diabetes. And yes, over the past a uh, number of years, there is a slight increase in the incidence of type 1 diabetes in the uh, Western world. You know, it's it's hard to exactly uh, say what we are though seeing much more frequently is the rise of type 2 diabetes in our young patients. So we are seeing right. now 15 and 16, 17 years old that have type 2 diabetes. And that's really early in your life to have a chronic illness that uh, may have a significant impact on other organs and shorten one's life. So you're right, there has been a shift. Diabetes, including type 1 and type 2, affect each age. I have to say that uh, we are very proud in this center to have people that have lived with type 1 diabetes for 50 years. So we have a special ceremony for the people that have had type 1 diabetes for 50 years. It's a called uh, Half a Century Awards. We dedicate a, a day, we bring patients and their families and uh, healthcare team to celebrate the achievement of living with type 1 diabetes for 15 years, which is in itself an amazing uh, achievement. And we were talking about pre-diabetes. I've been diagnosed as pre-diabetic. How does that mean if someone is pre-diabetic, are they destined to develop diabetes or am I doomed? Or is it obviously if I control lifestyle factors and so forth, can I fight it off? Oh, you are absolutely right, Ian. Good news. I have a good news. Type 2 diabetes is uh, preventable. So we can keep you, we can help you and uh, keep you in good shape and you do not have to develop type 2 diabetes. It's really important to uh, be aware of pre-diabetes because there's a lot we can do to prevent type 2 from developing. So you are, you are not given that you will have type 2, but you do have to put some effort into it. Uh, so again, lifestyle, maintaining healthy body weight, maintaining a good diet and being physically active at least 30 minutes, five times a week. We always say to a total about 150 minutes per week, and you can prevent diabetes. We know that weight loss of about 5% of the current body weight will decrease your risk of developing diabetes by 60%. That's huge. Hmm. So that means wow. that, that that it's not, you know, that it's rather preventable illness with some lifestyle changes. We do have a medications that can also decrease the risk of progressing to type 2 diabetes, but they are actually less effective than the lifestyle. So for example, oh, metformin, which is a common medication we use in treatment of pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes decreases the risk of development by 30%, while the lifestyle will do it by 60%. So that tells us how important it is to address the diet and activity. You know, I could talk about it. This is a passion of mine to certain... The, the, addressing the uh, lifestyle and exercise is great on a paper, but the barriers to doing so are actually quite significant. So. You know, this all means like addressing the food security and the, the measures to help people with those changes to decrease the risk of developing type 2 diabetes should be on a much larger systemic systemic level. We should not just blame our patients for their life choices. That's a completely wrong uh, approach and we don't do this for, for sure, but sometimes our patients and our people with diabetes may feel that way because 
of the advice they are given. So we say, you know, eat healthier, exercise. That's what you hear uh, everywhere mm-hmm. in the uh, news and on the TV and so forth. And, but that's a difficult thing to do. We cannot just say eat healthy when you don't have food security, you don't have access. The fruit and vegetables are so much more expensive yes. than buying soft drinks and chips, right? Yes, particularly now as, as we're seeing food prices rising, right? Yes, and that's a big concern to us. We know that that's going to affect our patients. I was going to ask you about the future of treatment and research into diabetes. Is there anything, um, you you mentioned a few things, but is there anything particularly exciting on the horizon that we're moving towards? Well, thank you for asking. Yes, I would say that the future and the road ahead is exciting and the future is bright. And we have had, over the past couple of years, development of new pharmacological agents that have looked beyond only treating blood sugars, but those agents have made a huge change in decreasing the risk of heart disease and strokes, progression of kidney disease. Uh, And for us, it's again another paradigm shift and the even newer agents that are still in development have shown such a huge promise Some of those agents have been able to help people lose up to 50 pounds weight and probably will be significantly implicated in the normalization of blood sugars and diabetes, hopefully in diabetes uh, remissions. Those studies are not yet fully done, but initial data that has just been presented this year has shown tremendous improvement, not only in blood sugar, but in weight, significant weight losses and normalizations, complete normalizations of blood sugar. So we are quite excited that we have now in our toolbox, which used to be only a couple of medications, now we have a whole array of very effective agents and the agents that not only normalize the blood sugar, but decrease those complications, those risks of vascular disease, heart attacks and strokes, kidney uh, disease. So I have to say the future is promising. I'm very excited and uh, I want to make sure that our patients know there is a hope uh, and there are much better treatments. The old memories of uncles and aunts and grandparents that were blind with amputated limbs that were on insulin, that was their own treatment that they had to take insulin four times a day are probably getting slowly behind us thanks to those new treatments. Well, that's very encouraging. That's, uh, and I'm, when we finish off here, I'm going outside. I'm going for my half-hour walk, definitely. That's, Please I'm excited. do. And the thing <laughs> is the new, it's the new illness, uh, so... I do try to get remind myself to get up every 20 minutes and go for a couple of minutes walk. That is a challenge, but we can all together be better. Simple things we can do. I, I always tell uh, my uh, patients, park the furthest in the grocery store parking lot so you can walk to the grocery store and always avoid the middle <laughs> aisles, <laughs> purchase your uh, groceries on outside where the veggies and fruits uh, and the dairy is. So do not go in the middle of the grocery store if that helps. Stay away from those uh, pretzels and chips. That's what you're saying. <laughs> Easier mm. said than done, but we can do it yes. together. And 
I always say we are here to help and we are all humans and we cannot be perfect and you know we all will at times have some uh, dietary indiscretions but uh, mm -hmm. if on overall we give our best to eat healthier and I think we are on a good road because our children in our schools are doing better job the schools are teaching uh, young ones about healthy diet and hopefully no pop machines and soda machines in schools anymore, more physical activity. I think we have to focus on our young generations. We have to make sure that uh, our youngest ones are physically active. We have to remember that at least an hour of a physical activity minimum for a young child each day. And I know that the social media and electronics are posing a, uh, a certain challenge, but we should think of the ways how to use this to our advantage rather than disadvantage. So, Excellent. Well, Dr. Spike, this has been uh, fascinating, informative, and, and uh, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic about things, really encouraging at the end there, I think. So thank you so much for joining us today on Doc Talks. Yeah, more than welcome. I'm very glad, Ian, for sure. The, uh, the, I will finish with saying that the future is uh, bright. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Speich. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. If you're interested in learning more, visit the St. Joseph's website at sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London to keep updated on our next episode. Until then, stay healthy. <laughs>